1. We are returning to Exodus, which we left off back in uh, November. Uh, And we're going to consider the rest of the book, but in snippets. We're going to look at various selections throughout. We'll talk about that in a minute, but um, our text today is verses 12 through 17. I'd like to read verse 1 first. Moses is told by God, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Now that idea of rules, these are not brand new laws. They're what's often referred to by theologians as case laws. They're specific applications of the moral law of the Ten Commandments to the life of ancient Israel. As such, they're uh, not necessarily something that we're intended to put into letter-by-letter, word-by-word practice in our culture today. Possibly, but that depends on the context Where they're exceptionally helpful to us is these case laws show us something of God's intent in the moral law. They give us insight into the depth of the meaning of those commands. I mean, some of those commands are very brief, aren't they? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Very brief The case laws show us that there's a breadth and a depth to the significance of those laws that ought to inform how they work themselves out in our lives. And that's the value of considering these case laws today for ourselves. So starting in verse 12, we read, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved ones, chosen by God and delivered through Christ. It's been a while since we looked at Exodus. And when we last considered it, we were at a point where God had declared His people holy. They were to be for Him a priestly people, devoted to serving and to revealing Him before the world. They were to be a holy people identified by, oriented around their worship. And we saw as we studied that particular section, chapters 19 and 20, but also the chapters leading up to that, that God's instruction for and God's interaction with His ancient people Israel is exceptionally informative for His chosen people today, the church. So as we go through the rest of this book, like I said, we're going to look at snippets. We're going to consider a number of these case laws and see what they tell us, both about 
God and His nature and His justice, but also about us and our calling as we live in this world. We're going to see some interactions between God and Israel, examining what those interactions show us about God and about us. And in all of it, we're going to pay careful attention to how God uses this instruction to teach His people about their hope, about our hope. We start today with a section that describes certain offenses that require the death penalty. Now, the death penalty in our culture has fallen upon disfavor. Many folks see it as barbaric, cruel, and unusual punishment, as though it were somehow worse to take a man's life than to incarcerate him with thousands of other criminals for the rest of his life. Others scorn it for pragmatic reasons. This is the political reason for scorning it. Well, it it bothers people. We'd better not do it. And still others, they dislike it because of the justice aspect. They know that invariably some people will be sentenced who didn't actually commit the crime. And therefore, some will be illegitimately put to death. Thing is, God is unconcerned with America's objections and qualms. He is the very standard of justice, and he declares that the death penalty is the just answer for certain sins. And as we shall see, he has good reason. Because what he shows us in this brief text is that our just God jealously guards his holy image. That's really what lies at the root of these six verses. Our just God jealously guarding his holy image. We see that, first of all, in how he guards his image from those desiring to destroy him, which is what we see in verses 12 through 14. The heart of this first section is found in the first verse, which tells us that anyone killing a person deserves death. Now, this is not a new command, obviously. Exodus 20, verse uh, 13 tells us, You shall not murder or you shall not kill. And that command arises from what we read in Genesis 9, verse 6. Right after Noah got off the ark, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, God says. For God made man in his own image which tells us that that command to kill a man who sheds the blood of a man rests in Genesis 1 verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. From the very start, man has been uniquely different than any other creature because man uniquely was created to bear the likeness and the image of God. So a man who kills another man has done something uniquely significant. He has destroyed the one creature who was designed and ordained to show forth God. He has attacked and has ended one who stood as a mirror of God. And in so doing, he has implicitly attacked God. That is why Murder deserves death. The killing of a human being is an attack upon God himself, whom that person represents. And therefore, this sin demands the ultimate penalty. But understand, the breadth 
of this command was unique in the age when it was given. Ancient Near Eastern cultures generally evaluated a death based on the class of the person who was killed. So a wealthy landowner who was killed, that would be considered a grave injustice that demanded a serious penalty, whereas the death of a slave would be, well, a slave was low on the class system, and so his death would be worth much, much less. The life of a woman would be valued less than the life of a man, the life of a child, even less than that. And so, for instance, a wealthy man who killed a young slave, in most ancient Near Eastern cultures, he would not be killed. But instead, a slave under his control or in his possession would be killed as an equal and just reaction. A man who killed a woman, he probably wouldn't be killed in most of their cultures, but rather the family of the deceased would require the death of a woman from his family. You see, God doesn't play by the rules of men. God created all men to bear his image. Men and women, young and old, free and slave. There was no exception, no sliding scale based on class. All people were designed to bear the image of God and therefore the taking of their lives demanded the ultimate penalty of the one who acted including the poor person who no one bothered to notice, including the woman who was victimized and and beaten by all the men in her lives, including the little baby, even the one in the womb, whose life society might say doesn't have much value. The killing of any of these constitutes an attack upon God himself and therefore demands death. However... While this set the taking of all life on equal ground, there was one significant exception. Verse 13 describes what our legal system would call involuntary manslaughter. The one who committed the act, the one who brought about the death, had not been lying in wait. In other words, there was no planning on his part to induce death. The death didn't come through an intentional act. Instead, God let him fall into his hand. Though it happened by the agency of this man, it was through God's sovereign guidance of the events that the death came about, not through the man's planning. This describes a tragedy, an accidental death or an accidental event that results in death. Maybe a a farmhand gets run over by a wagon driven by another farmhand or a blacksmith is killed when the head of a hammer by his co-worker flies off and hits him, or a soldier is killed in what we would call a friendly fire incident. Those kinds of events are tragedies, but they're not intentional acts. They don't arise from anger or malice. And so God says they need to be treated differently. Now, there would still be consequences. After all, one who was made to bear the image of God was killed. A family was deprived of a valued member. There may have been a degree of negligence involved. So there will be some consequences for the one who took the life, but he won't die. And again, this is massively countercultural for its age. As I said before, they valued each life based on the class system, 
But they did demand a death for a death. They regarded that as just, they regarded that as fitting, and they regarded it as a great offense if that didn't happen. And so if a person killed, whether intentionally or not, a young man from another family, a young man from his family had to die. And if the retribution was sought and someone, the the one who was killed was regarded as having a different class, well, then there would have to be another death to make up for that. This is how feuds began. And entire cities or regions could be decimated as families went back and forth seeking retribution. But God says no. God cares about the why. He doesn't just care about the what. This is not just true for for killing. This is true for every sin. He doesn't care just what happened, but why it happened. He cares about the motive. In this case, there was no intent to kill. And so again, there will be consequences. Everything we do has consequences. But the life of the perpetrator will be spared because he didn't intend to take a life. God says he will set apart cities for them. This is spelled out much more clearly in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19. There would be cities on each side of the Jordan River where a person who committed such involuntary manslaughter could flee. And there he would be protected from the family that was maybe seeking to get even. He would be protected from the authorities who were seeking justice until until a trial could be held. An investigation could be carried out. And then if it was found that he was in fact acting with malice, that he was in fact acting intentionally, he would be turned over to be killed. But if not, then he would be allowed to stay in that city, bringing his family if he had one. He would have to stay there to ensure his protection, but he would be able to continue living and being productive and serving the Lord. But, verse 14, if a man willfully attacks another man to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. There is no wiggle room in that. Note well how the perpetrator is described. He willfully attacks. The verb there has a sense of boiling over, indicating that what he did arose from the heart This was planned. It was purposeful. It was a death that was designed. He meant to kill him by cunning. In other words, he planned this out. There was malice aforethought. And that malice, that hatred, that intentionality, that's what offends God. He wants us to recognize this is what drove the murder, the malice, the hatred. And that is what demands his death. And therefore, such a man may not be allowed to take refuge at the altar of God. Now, understand, that is not something that is ever commanded. But it is described several times by men who had committed a sin and sought to escape justice. They would run to the altar and take hold of it, regarding that as a place of forgiveness, but also of holiness. 
expecting that the people who sought their life would not desecrate the altar by killing them there. But God says, no, forgiveness is not about proximity. It's not about coming into the right place. Forgiveness is a matter of repentance. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of a substitute taking the penalty, the just penalty for you. And so he said, no. <clears throat> when the man has acted with malice, when the sin was intentional, you shall take him from my altar. Do not allow him to seek that refuge and put him to death. Because our God is just. And he cannot simply overlook the wanton destruction of his image. So what then are the lessons we need to draw from this first section of our text? The first and arguably one of the clearest lessons is that man is uniquely made in the image of God. And that is no small thing. God created us to show the world what he is like. That is inherent to mankind. Now to be sure, in sin we corrupt the image of God. But even within rank sinners, the remnant of God's image remains. And not even rebellion, not even class distinctions erase that. Man is uniquely privileged to reveal God to the world. And so when man is stricken, it is God who is attacked. Moreover, we see that our God is a just God. He's commanded that men made in His image be honored in order to honor Him. And so when they are attacked, He is attacked, and He will not overlook that. <coughs> Instead, He demands that the life of the one who has taken His image be taken from Him. We also learn <coughs> that our God is merciful to those who do not act with malice. Though the outward act look similar, if the inward motive indicates that there was no rebellion or wickedness against God, the man is to be spared, protected, his life preserved. <coughs> Nevertheless, our God does demand justice for the wicked. And the only escape from the consequences of that justice is if someone else takes that consequence for us. Only Christ. And we heard from 1 John, anyone who hates his brother is, in fact, a murderer. Which means every one of us who has looked with hatred upon his brother at some point deserves death deserves destruction because our hatred was not just against that person it was against God himself and the only escape is the escape God provided in sending his son who never hated who never murdered who never deserved death to die for us it's only by taking hold of him <coughs> repenting of our sin acknowledging our guilt and seeking his mercy it's only through Christ that we can escape the penalty that we all deserve but then there's another set of death penalty offenses this time God defending his honor 
not from those desiring to destroy him, but from those exposing him to contempt. The section begins by describing the crime of striking one's father or mother. <coughs> Pardon my... <clears throat> I've been suffering with a, a sore throat, and it's coming back to, to, uh, to attack me. Um, obviously, this is referring to a violation of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. But to be clear, what's described here is not a minor thing. <coughs> this is not a slap that comes impulsively, such that it even sort of surprises the one who sends it. It's not a sudden and impulsive but very brief attack. No, the verb here is in a form that describes an action that is repetitive and intensive. This is not a strike, but a beatdown. This is not a slap, but an outright attack. Even so, such an attack would not otherwise bring death. The, the verses immediately following this section use the same verb to describe an attack on one who is not a parent. And while there is a consequence for it, the consequence is not death. But you see, this case is different because it is a parent who is struck. Parents were bestowed by God with a unique role. They were given to guide their children out of the sin and the rebellion in which they were born and unto God. More than that, they were given to reflect God to their children. Again, we're all made to bear the image of God. And parents do that uniquely with their children. Parents, don't overlook that. The way you treat your children is meant to reflect God. We do it poorly, don't we? You are meant to love your children in a way that they can experience the love of God. You are meant to discipline your children in a way that will allow them to experience the discipline of God. You are meant to instruct them. You are meant to speak to them. You are meant to hold them. You are meant to guide them with wisdom that points them to that of God. Now we do it imperfectly. We all do. To our woe. But nonetheless, that is our calling. And even when we do it imperfectly, God uses it to reveal to them essential aspects of God. And so when a child strikes his parent, he's striking out not ultimately at his parent, but as, at God. You see, this command is not really about parents. It's about a person's response to the representative, the clearest representative for God that is found in his life. When he strikes, when he attacks, when he so violently rejects God, he must be put to death. And likewise, the next sin, described in verse 16, as a sin of stealing. Specifically, stealing a man. Presumably, the, the person is kidnapped to be sold into slavery. Today, it's called human trafficking, and it happens more today than it has at probably any other time in history. But the sin itself belongs not just to the person who engages in the sin. Notice that. It belongs also to the person who possesses the kidnapped person, whether the buyer of a kidnapped slave or the broker of slaves. <coughs> it's their sin, even though they didn't take the person because they encouraged the sin, because they made the sin profitable. 
It's that way with every sin. It doesn't just belong to the person who does the act, but also to those who encourage it, to those who make it profitable. But what is so serious about this sin that requires death? Is this a reflection of God's hatred against slavery? It's actually not. If we had had a little more time, I would have read the whole chapter up to verse 17, and you would have seen that the first verses of this chapter regulate, regulate slavery. That's not to say that slavery is ideal, but it is to say that God tolerated it and instituted commands to make it relatively honorable, but that was a voluntary slavery. And that's an entirely different creature. In that culture, and in many cultures, people could sell themselves into slavery that was temporary, that was contractual, and that was rewarded. That's the way many people got to America. We called it indentured servitude. They would serve for a specified period of time, and that would cover the cost of their travel to the new world and their room and board. They would labor in, in payment for that, and then they would be given their freedom. And God was okay with that because that honored the inherent freedom of the individual, and more than that, that honored the image of God within them. They were rewarded for their labor. They were blessed for the gifts that they employed, which God had given them. But not so this involuntary slavery, this man-stealing. In this case, one who was created to bear the image of God and to reveal it to the world. He is treated as a mere commodity. He is treated as mere livestock to be stolen and bought and sold and used. And such cannot be done without absolutely slandering God. It deserves death because they have taken the image of God and used it as a mere commodity. And likewise, when we get back to the parent-child relationship in verse 17, here we have a child who doesn't strike his parent, but he curses his parent. Cursing is an act of mockery, treating someone with contempt or honor or dishonor. In fact, the fifth commandment when it calls children, when, when it calls you to honor your father and mother, the word used there, kavad, is a word that really means, it literally means to make weighty or to make heavy. You, you treat your parents in a way that shows that you believe that they are weighty, right? That they have value, they have honor. The word that's used here for cursing, kalal, it means the exact opposite, to make light to regard as ephemeral, as, as having no substance. It's the exact opposite. What's that look like? Folks, you've all seen this. It's the teenager who utterly despises his parents. It's the young adult who mocks not just her parents, but all that they stand for, all that they believe. Cursing one's father or mother is saying in word and in attitude that you hate your parents and you hate everything that they stand for, everything about them. You can't wait to get rid of them and everything, that, everything about them. But again, remember, parents were given for a unique purpose to reflect God to their children. 
So how we treat our parents, and yes, I know that all parents are imperfect, but they still have that role, they still have that calling, and so how we treat them reflects our opinion of, reflects our relationship to God. To honor your father and your mother is to honor God and to curse, to take them lightly, to scorn them is to scorn and take lightly and curse the living God. That's why God always condemns such behavior. Proverbs 20, verse 20, if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Proverbs 30, verse 17, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Ouch. Cursing deserves death. Cursing of parents because of the scorn it involves toward God himself. Understand what we learn about God from these three commands. We learn above all else that parents are meant to be proxies for God. They are given to lead their children to know and serve God. They're given to model the very character of God for their children. They're given to teach their children what God is like. Fathers and mothers, you need to pray fervently. We need to pray fervently. Because that's a calling we are not up for inherently. We need what only God can give us to be able to do that. But at the same time, we need to recognize that that's what God gave us our parents for. And even though they do it imperfectly, they do it. They care for us. They discipline us. They love us. And so how we regard them reflects how we regard God. Every time. And so we must honor them. We must respect them despite their sins and failures as a means of respecting, honoring, upholding, loving God. We must. And that's not only in our parents. We must respect and honor all people for the gifts that they have and the honor they have and the freedom they have as image bearers of God, if we scorn that, if we reject that, if we belittle that, not just by man-stealing, when you mock and belittle and denigrate the, the very humanity of a person, it's so easy to do in this social media age, in this age of mocking memes, most of us, we've done it. But are we not also attacking God? And God regards harshly that misuse and abuse of those who bear His image, treating it as an act of hatred against Himself. And here's the thing. We do it. We all fail in these respects. Some in little ways, some in absolutely massive ways. But a failure is a failure, a sin is a sin, and the death penalty is the death penalty. Which means that we all desperately need Christ. When he hung on the cross, it wasn't because he had scorned 
because he had cursed, because he had stolen, because he... No. He hung on the cross because we attacked God, because we cursed God, because we denied and deprived the image of God. He did it for us so that we could escape that penalty. He did it for us so that we could no longer be held enslaved to those wicked sins. So acknowledging our own guilt, let us seek His forgiveness. And then let us, having been freed from those sins, having been freed from that ugliness of attacking God, of hating God, of cursing God, let us turn from that and resolve anew to honor Him in all the manifestations of His image. That people looking on us, seeing our love, seeing our care, seeing our honor, might see a clear reflection of Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need both the forgiveness and the transformative power that only Jesus can give. We pray that you would provide it and that you would enable our hearts to see the need for deliverance and for transformation. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, acknowledging that God 